Good morning. So here we are after what sometimes seems like just yesterday and other times seems like it's been months since we started the Sermon on the Mount series. And here we are at the very end of these words that Jesus spoke that day on the Galilean hillside. And as I was preparing and working through today's verses earlier this week and last night, it just struck me how how well chosen Jesus makes these words here at the end of chapter 7, the final words of this sermon on the mount. So I'm going to read verses 24 through 29, which is the end of the chapter of chapter 7. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for or because he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that even 2,000 years later, on a separate hillside far, far away from where these words were ever spoken, they are still true and still pierce our hearts as they did on that day, on that hillside far away from us. I pray, Lord, as we enter into this time of understanding what you have said, what you want us to grasp and understand from it, and the totality of everything you've told us in this Sermon on the Mount, I pray, Father, that your spirit would open our eyes and open our ears, that we would hear and see and understand and thereby have our love for you increased and our obedience to you expanded. And I pray, Lord, that you would open up the words of my mouth to say these things that you have chosen for your people to hear and that I would speak your words of your truth and not add anything to them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here we are at the end. And as often the case, at least for me, as I walk through the Sermon on the Mount, it just seems kind of odd at first that Jesus would say something like this after what he had just said in the verses before. But then as I listen to them, as I start to grasp their meaning and understanding and take them in, I began to realize, well, this makes perfect sense. This is exactly what Jesus should be saying after what he had just said in the verses before. Because in the verses before, he talked about uh, the, the fruit of our lives and then the part about there will be people who pretend to know him and do things for him in his name, yet at the moment of their judgment in heaven, he will look at them and go, I never knew you. And it's a scary thought, right? I mean, no one wants to be in that place of Jesus looking at them and going, I never knew you. And he ends all of this by pointing out that if you do these words that I have spoken to you, 
this day, you will be like the man who built his house on the rock. So what Jesus is saying then is that his words are like a rock foundation that we build our lives and our hope and our faith upon. Why? Why are his words such solid foundation words? I mean, first off, we have to acknowledge that they're the foundation words because they are the very words of God. When Jesus speaks, he even speaks as one who has the authority of God from the Old Testament. That phrase there at the end of chapter 7, and the, when Jesus finished, he's saying the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as their scribes, carries this weight to it of like the prophets of the Old Testament, speaking the very words of God to the people. But of course, this isn't just another prophet. Yes, he is a prophet greater than Moses, as Moses himself said would happen when Jesus came. But this isn't just a prophet. This is God speaking. I mean, look at, and, and look at John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59. I thought about just trying to read a couple of verses, but it's like, no, this doesn't work if you just, well, in my mind, it doesn't work. If you just read a couple of verses from John chapter 8. We have to start with verse 48 and go all the way through verse 59. So Jesus is having this little um, conflict with the Pharisees, which happens often in the Gospels. And they're saying, you are crazy. Have you lost your mind? Jews answered Jesus. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, wait a minute. Can you imagine someone saying that to Jesus? You got a demon in you, fool. I mean, to use modern street language. You got a demon in you, fool. What? Yeah, what idiot would say that to Jesus? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? In other words... If this was happening today, they would look at him and go, who do you think you are with all the disdain and judgmental condemnation they could muster from their vocal cords? Who do you think you are? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. And if I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, Yet you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. 
So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, for most of us, this just seems kind of like why they're getting so mad they want to stone him because he said, before Abraham was, I am. And that's because we don't understand when you tell a Jew, I am, you are saying God's name. I am. Every, like every time you go back and look in your Old Testament and just every time you find the word Lord in capital letters, usually it's a big L and then a lowercase, little smaller font, capital O-R-D. Every time you find that, that is the Hebrew word Yahweh. And it is literal translation. If we were to literally translate it, it wouldn't be the word Lord. It would be I am. That is God's name, the one he self-identifies by in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush when Moses asked, well, who do I tell them has sent me? God replies to Moses, you tell them that I am who I am. I am has sent you. And from that moment forward, every time you see in the Old Testament, the capital letter Lord, that is I am. And Jesus, who Lord Jesus steps into it big time on this one. When he says before Abraham was, I am. Look, there's lots of places you can go in the old, in the New Testament, in the Gospels and say that, well, Jesus identifies himself as God, right? One of the questions a lot of people ask is, well, did Jesus ever actually say that of himself? Did he ever say he was God? Everybody else says he was God, but did he ever say it himself? Yes, right here. There's like no questions left now. This is him self-identifying as the great I am. And woo, that was stirring up the hornet's nest in a big way. That's why they picked up rocks and wanted to stone him. But then you have this stunning statement by John as to why they didn't get to stone him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. How? How? How does, how does that happen? How does Jesus, the guy that everybody knows and recognizes, who just stood there and had a big fight with the Pharisees and everybody's watching it, Everybody sees him and they know what he looks like and the Pharisees know what he looks like and they're ready to stone him and you can't see him? Are you serious? You cannot see him. You can't see this guy we've all been staring at for the past 30 minutes. Where did he go? That's the description John gives. Oh, he just hit himself and went out of the temple. I mean, that's so nonchalant. I mean, you got a massive crowd ready to have a riot. Remember the riots of 2020, the crowds that, that drew for the rioting? We've got this going on in the temple, that same kind of thing happening here in the temple. And he just hid himself and went out of the temple, just sort of like, okay, see you dudes later. This is crazy. But this is Jesus. In fact, you could even argue the case that this is evidence that he truly is the I am. Because you have this crowd that is ravening, mad dog, irritated, crazy, wild, mad. Just watched him, looked at him, know exactly what, they know exactly what his face looks like. They know the clothes he's been wearing, he's got on because they've just watched him for the past 30 or 40 minutes with these Pharisees. And they can't see him. It would be like. Yeah, Elvis Presley, when he was alive, walking through downtown Castle Rock and nobody would recognize that was him? Like, really? This is impossible. Unless you are the great I am 
and have that divine power to shield and hide yourself from their visible view. Okay, that was just bonus material there. That wasn't even part of the plan for this morning. So these foundational words that he's been giving are the words of God. I still don't have a good way to say this. They are the words of life. They are both the words of life because he is God speaking to us the words of life. And they are the words of life because they give life. And that's still an awkward way to say this. And I, it, it, but that's, that's all I've got this morning. These, these are words of life because he is God speaking them to us. But in their very essence, they themselves have life in them. I know that doesn't make sense, uh, but, but that's, that's just true. These are words of life that he speaks, all of them. Not just here in the Sermon on the Mount, but every word that Jesus has spoken. And when we acknowledge that he is the I am, that means everything from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-24. Everything in between, all of it. They are words of life both for our earthly existence as well to enjoy here on this earth and to have life here as well as our eternal one. And how does that work? How, how do these become words of eternal life, but yet they're also words of life here? And how does that make sense? And we reconcile that with the reality of martyrdom and what the disciples went through after Jesus leaves and as well as all the other heroes of the faith that have been martyred, both those we know and those we've never heard of. How does that work? Well, I mean, I go back to John chapter 6 again, verses 66 through 69. When many of his disciples heard it, this is where, right? So Jesus says, I am the bread of life. So this is in before that, before verse 66, he says, I'm the bread of life and you have to eat my flesh. And the Jews said, oh, this is a really hard one. We can't deal with this. And they left. And then starting in verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with Jesus. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, did I not choose you twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was the one of the twelve that was going to betray Jesus. So here we have in the midst of all this, I mean, this is one of the most confusing things about the life of Judas. He spent, we, th we figure, about three years walking with Jesus, hearing the words of life, yet he never received them. 
He spent three years seeing all the evidences and proof that Jesus was the promised Messiah. But didn't believe them. And after all of this, he still betrays Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane with a kiss. Like, really? Are you that low down? Are you that sorry of an excuse for a Jew that you would betray Jesus with a kiss like this? You deserve what you're going to get, Judas. You deserve it. And Jesus knew this from the beginning. And he didn't kick Judas out. My mind just goes in so many different places. Jesus understood this from the beginning and he didn't kick Judas out. Okay. Because that's the way it had to happen. Even the betrayal of Judas was the all along plan of God. And Jesus agrees to this plan in part, we know this in part, because he doesn't kick Judas out, but lets Judas do the very thing he's planned to do and that Jesus knew he was going to do. I mean, at any moment, he could have snapped his fingers and Judas just evaporates like dust, right? like in the Marvel movie. They're gone. He could do the same thing to Judas, but he doesn't. That's even shocking and stunning. I mean, if I had that power and I knew that Judas was going to betray me, that old boy would be a pile of dust in 30 seconds or less. I'm not as loving as Jesus. I know that's shocking to some of you. These are the words of life. I think that's in part one of the reasons why Jesus doesn't turn Judas into a pile of dust. He's not here on the earth to judge. He's here on the earth in that time to become the words of life for those who will believe. His goal and purpose is salvation and deliverance, not judgment and condemnation. That's coming in the future. The Jesus coming back won't be the meek and mild Jesus. He'll be the majestic and mighty Jesus. He'll be the kicking butt Jesus. Here, he's the humble servant. Here, he's giving the words of life to his disciples and all who will receive it for the joy that comes from living in his word and in his words of life. Then Jesus turns the corner on this conversation with verse 26. I'm sorry, I'm back in Matthew chapter 7. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. This isn't just describing a few shingles coming off in a big thunderstorm. He's describing a complete washing away of the house to its not even being able to see where it was before. Everything's gone. Like you can't even tell it used to be there at one time, except maybe for some cleared trees. 
And the thing about this is Jesus just didn't pull in this out of thin air. The more you study the words of Jesus in the Gospels, the more stunning it is, to me at least, how he never just pulls things out of thin air and suddenly creates something that wasn't there before. This very idea comes itself from Ezekiel chapter 13, verses 10 through 6. This is Ezekiel prophesying against the false prophets. Yeah, think about that for a second. He's prophesying against false prophets. Precisely because they have misled my people saying peace when there is no peace. And because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash and say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall, there will be a deluge of rain. And you, O great hailstones, will fall and a stormy wind break out. And when the wall falls, will it not be said to you, where is the coating with which you smeared it? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath. And there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger and great hailstone and in my wrath to make a full end. And I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundations will be laid bare when it falls. You shall perish in the midst of it and you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus will I spend my wrath upon the wall and upon those who have smeared it with whitewash. And I will say to you, the wall is no more nor those who smeared it. The prophets of Israel who prophesied concerning Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the Lord. This is Ezekiel going after these guys who've been lying to the people, been telling them what they want to hear, not what God actually says. And here Jesus is drawing on this same imagery of absolute destruction for those who think they are enjoying peace by pretending and covering it up, covering up the evil around them. And when Jesus says back in Matthew chapter 7, when he says these words about those who don't follow them will be like when this great storm come against them. He's saying to them, look, you ignore my words and you're going to get wrecked. Ignore my words and you're going to get wrecked. This is some pretty bold statements. I mean, look, Jesus is really coming hard. And at this point when he's saying the Sermon on the Mount, He's probably, you know, can't say it exactly, but it's probable that he hasn't had this confrontation with the Pharisees that I read to you in John chapter 8, where he says, I am, where he makes these declarative statements that he is God. I, that's probably not happened at this point when he's having the Sermon on the Mount there in northern Galilee on that afternoon. And to say these kind of things with this kind of boldness and this kind of authority is just bold. For Jesus to do. I mean he's really. Driving a stake in the ground here. These aren't just. These are some wise things for you to do my children. No this isn't Dalai Lama. Talking to his followers. This is the God of heaven and earth. Driving a stake in the ground. And saying from this point forward. These are your anchor points. This is your anchor point. From this point forward. Your life needs to be tethered to this. And if you aren't God, you best not be saying something like this. Because Ezekiel was very clear about what happens to those who falsely teach and prophesy to the people and those who listen to the false prophets. It's very clear what's going to happen. 
The same thing Jesus describes here. And so you better be, you better be God, Jesus. If you're saying this to us and we're going to listen to you, you better be the real thing. And he is. He is that great cornerstone of our faith and foundation. I mean, look at Matthew chapter 21. Verses 42 through 46. And Jesus said to them, have you not read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. There's that fruit thing again. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable and they perceived that he was speaking about them, and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. He is this great cornerstone of the faith. And this very phrase that Jesus quotes from the Old Testament, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. That comes from Psalm 118. And you know I'm going to read it to you. But I won't read the whole thing. I'll just start with verse 14 in Psalm 118. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tent of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the great gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords and up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good forever. For his steadfast love endures forever. This is just stunning. This whole idea of salvation coming to the people and deliverance from evil and avoiding death happens because the stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone. And then, on top of that, the gates of righteousness are built around this cornerstone. And, if that wasn't enough, we get to walk through them. We get to walk through the gates of righteousness. And all of that leads the psalmist to explode into this vociferous, loud, boisterous song of praise. Look, look in your, look at, look, I'm not, you, I'll, I'll prove it to you. Look at the exclamation mark at the end of almost every sentence. Biblical writers don't put exclamation marks there for something they're just sort of, kind of, sort of feeling. They put the exclamation mark there because they're intense. This is real. They feel it. Save us, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Oh, this, for his steadfast love endures forever. Yes, 
That's the way we should receive and read this psalm. That's the way we should receive our cornerstone in the faith. I know I got to come to an end, but I can't. We got to go to Ephesians chapter two. This is just, it's just too rich to not grasp it. Ephesians chapter two, verse 11. Therefore, because of the things that he's already said in the previous verses of chapter two about God's rich mercy and raising us from our dead state in our trespasses. Because of all of this, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing that hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostle and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Hallelujah, praise Jesus. He is our cornerstone and in him the hostility has been broken and peace has come to us. In him we are built together into a holy structure, into a holy temple. And yes, we can read this in a very individualized way, and that is correct. Each of us are holy temples. Yet at the same time, we also need to read it as a church body. He is building all of us into a holy temple, joined together. I don't understand how that works. I really don't. I'll be a completely, I, I just don't, it just does, sometimes it just doesn't make sense to me. It's just too abstract. But I believe it. And, and I see it starting to happen with this church body. Even though I don't understand it. And that makes it even more glorious. Right? I don't know about you guys, but the things I don't understand and Jesus, God does them even though I don't understand them, that just makes them more glorious than the things I can explain. I mean, it's just the way that my mind works. In him, we have our peace and we are joined together. He is the promise that we can rest and build our faith upon. 
Therefore, as we have now come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, my brothers and sisters, I implore you that he has given us all the words in this Sermon on the Mount out of his great love for us, and I implore you to receive them with the same love that he has given them to you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you, Father Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our chief cornerstone, the glorious, beautiful one upon which we build the foundation of our faith and is supporting and holds up everything that we hope in and live for and live into. Thank you, Father, that you have given us your love And I pray, Father, that you would cause us through the working of the Holy Spirit to receive your love the way you gave it to us for the purposes you have given it to us. And that we may sing and have joy in it and in you. And I ask it in the sweet, precious name of Jesus. Amen.